0: So, in, so one of the things with solar panels is that something like 80% of all solar panels are built in China. And most of the polysilicon, one of the key ingredients comes from Xinjiang, where, it's run, where the entire system runs on forced labor. So there's a big question about, well, should we be getting solar panels from there? You know, if we ramp it up to kind of expand it all over the country and all over the world to run on solar energy, are we gonna do that on the backs of forced labor in Western China? With their people in basically in concentration camps, re indoctrination camps and stuff like that. These are real questions. And it's, again, I think there's a strong corporate push at this time behind traditional renewable energy in the form of solar and wind companies. And I find a lot of it dishonest at this point, especially because they pretend like there's gonna be a big green revolution in terms of energy and jobs. It's like, no, you guys are just buying panels from China and installing them. The jobs are in installation and construction. It's like, those are temporary jobs you get the build-out, you get the time, you get the jobs from the build-out, then it's gone.
1: Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich, and today I have with me Jason Scheftel. Jason is an expert in China politics. He is a writer, a podcaster, a consultant. Uh, He's been in the world of sustainability, and I'm really excited to have a conversation with him about all of that because, you know, this world we're living in is changing and we are creating a new tomorrow today and activating our vision for a better world. And Jason might have some good ways for you to do that in you know, relationship to the rest of the world. So Jason, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks Ari, I'm glad to be here.
1: <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started in uh, in the relationship with China? And uh, some of your sustainability and those kinds of things. You sure, your background.
0: Yeah, sure. The, so my, the China angle for me goes back a long time, probably around 20 years, but I was really really got interested in China around when 9/11 and the Iraq war and all of that really started. I was very curious about, not even curious. I was kind of worried and curious, intense and nervous, wondering what was going on in the world. Are we going to see with China? the same sort of bizarre miscalculations and hysterical reactions we saw with the US in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then here we are 20 years later, and we've kind of fled with our tail tucked between our legs. And over that time, I just wanted to learn what was really going on in China, what the country was really about, uh, what to do with a country that's so large and complex. And we had to understand it. We have to really understand it if we want to have any sort of way to get our hands around where it's going and where it comes from really and then yeah so i started i went i you know i learned chinese um in college i got a scholarship to study in china at beijing in beijing at beijing university there i learned about various systems actually that's where a lot of the sustainability stuff came in i was really interested early on in how how are we developing the world today how what systems what electrical types of systems are we building Uh, sustainable water systems, transportation systems, all of this. And when I was actually in China, I was studying that. I was studying their transportation networks, agriculture systems, their demography, all all of those inputs that kind of give us the societies that we live in. I was just very curious where that was going. And yeah, at the time, that was the, you know, 2010 to 2015, I was in and out of China uh, most of the time. And that was where, that was kind of the heyday for me of sustainability and what kind of sustainable future we were going to build. And I actually learned a lot of things that kind of, set me against a lot of the mainstream about how would we would get that done and what would work and what wouldn't work. And yeah, so I've just been kind of putting some pieces together, trying to figure out what could work and what we could do, and then trying to share it with
1: people. Awesome. So, you know, you know this show is all about going against the mainstream. So let's talk about a little bit of what the mainstream solutions are and what you've found are the flaws in those systems and,
0: you know, how they can be improved. Sure. Well, right now, the two main systems from a sort of renewable energy perspective, we could just take the sort of green energy, which is very important. Since the industrial revolution, you need energy to to run society, to run any of these civilizations, any of these industrial systems. And we've typically ran on fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. Uh, And everyone everywhere is talking about how we're going to get rid of them. And the main two that we've come up with are wind, basically wind turbines, uh, wind energy, and then solar energy with solar panels. And these, these two things are awesome. I have nothing against them. I think they're very cool. But the issue is that most of the world, the vast majority of the world does not have the solar irradiation you need or the, the wind speed, height and consistency that you need to have panels. Uh, I mean sorry to have panels or turbines running. So if you sort of map it out and you look at the sort of places where you have the, the right solar conditions, the right sun conditions, the radiation you need, or the right wind conditions, it's a very small percentage of the world. And you, if you put that next to the places that have the population centers n- nearby, right it, it's tough. Otherwise you have to build very, very large uh, transmission systems. And in the United States, for example, it's very tough to build a single transmission line. It can take decades. It can take 10, 15 years. And so just know, because of red tape, red tape, but a lot of things, it could be environmental things. You could be crossing a lot of uh, preserved you know, sort of habitats that need to be preserved or endangered species, it can cross through tribal lands, Um, red tape, and then yeah, and then there's increasing backlash from a lot of rural areas. So in California, the oldest, the two oldest areas for one of the two oldest areas for wind and solar energy is near Palm Springs. And people in Palm Springs now see a lot of the solar and wind energy production as almost industrializing the landscape. So they don't want to see wind turbines as far as the eye can see. They don't want solar panels on all land surrounding them. And it's a real challenge. So that's particularly on on the left where there's so much investment in these two technologies, there's ever more competing interests. And it's interesting that these are both environmental versus environmental. It's environmental versus humanitarian. It's environmental versus um, sometimes racial or uh, other other justice issues.
1: So, When it comes to those two right we're not talking about something that I've thought of as as a great source of energy for years which is wave energy right the the flowing of waves so they're constantly coming into shore there uh, there is a way to harness harness that energy right but we're not talking about that as far as like a main kind of of, uh, of energy source. The other thing that, that comes to mind with regards to things like the wind turbines, right? I remember reading, this is maybe 12, 13 years ago in a popular science magazine. It was a, a, a wind uh, turbine that was horizontal. So instead of vertically spinning, it's spun horizontal. It spun on basically a fulcrum So there was very little resistance. So it was like a three mile per hour breeze that would cause it to generate energy, which is almost nothing and can be found almost everywhere. Yet those kinds of newer forms of the old technology still aren't being adopted, right? The solar panels are just starting to undergo transformation in their technology as well um, to make them less expensive. So here's my, my, I guess my question, the point of that rant is when it comes to these things, how quickly can we move with technology if we got out of our own way rather than holding technology back due to money concerns and other things like that?
0: Yeah, it's, it's an open question, but I mean, you bring up a really good point that there are different styles of these sorts of technologies, and some of them aren't being considered as much. A big reason why is that it's a question of scale and centralization in a lot of ways. So the large solar and wind companies are just as invested in controlling these resources as a typical fossil fuel company, oil company is. So they want to build giant wind farms um, and giant solar farms uh, because you gives, it gives you scale, it gives you a large size. It's not, they're not as interested in doing small micro local sorts of things. There's a big battle going on between, should we have giant, giant transmission lines all over the world and, and all over the country and then sort of take advantage of the, the great wind corridors in the center of the country and sort of ship the energy out, you know, and take advantage of, you know, the Southwest of the United States for solar, or should we try and do this in a more diffuse distributed way where sort of you have little, little power plants everywhere I mean, that's a big that's a big question. And it's right. not
1: decentralizing yeah. the grids.
0: Yeah. It's it's I mean, that just one of the things we got always gotta remember it's trillions of dollars to replace the grid. And it brings up real questions about reliability, about who who runs it, how the systems work, because they're not meant for solar panels on every house. That's not how they're designed. And we'll see where it goes. But you also bring up the question of the the tech, the actual how how far can we go with the technologies we have? Right. And so with solar panels, there's about, there's an efficiency threshold where you, you're really not going to be able to go beyond it, um, but it's, it's very good. I mean, it's, it's very good. And then with wind turbines, you're, you're sort of, what they've decided to do is just go for bigger and bigger turbines. They're not really changing like the, the arrangement of them. They really just want them huge. I mean, I think they're multiple football fields long right. at this point. And that's also really good for the companies, uh, companies like Vestas in Europe that manufactures these because no one's going to. Come at you if you manage if you're manufacturing things that big. It's there's very few companies that can do it, right. and that's the other question is the industry where is it located? So in so one of the things with solar panels is that something like 80% of all solar panels are built in China, and most of the polysilicon, one of the key ingredients, comes from Xinjiang, where it's run, it, where the entire system runs on forced labor. So it was a big question about well should we be getting solar panels from there? If we ramp it up to kind of expand it all over the country and all over the world to run on solar energy, are we going to do that on the backs of forced labor in Western China, where there are people in basically in concentration camps, re indoctrination camps and stuff like that? These are real questions. And it's, again, I think there's a strong corporate push at this time behind traditional renewable energy in the form of solar and wind companies. And I find a lot of it dishonest at this point, especially because they they pretend like there's going to be a big green revolution in terms of energy and jobs. It's like, no, you guys are just buying panels from China and installing them. The jobs are in in installation and construction. It's like, those are temporary jobs. You get the build out, you get the time, you get the jobs from the build out, then it's gone.
1: So, you know, let's say, I mean, we obviously can't change China's stance on how they treat their employees and, at least up till now, our policies are as such that it is tremendously incentivized to work with China, right? Versus other places that have maybe better policies towards their people. So how do we bridge that gap between bringing those jobs back to America, bringing those jobs actually to anywhere that they're going to be installed, the manufacturing, should be kind of in the areas in which they'll be installed, um, so so that we're always buying local, right? So even big companies can, you know, think a little differently and and do that. But um, how do we bridge those gaps?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think you you really nailed it. It's going to be more production where the consumption or the installation happens. That that's where things are trending, and the way it worked is that China. Basically flooded the market with solar panels and did them below cost, so no one else could compete to basically corner the market during the 2010s. That's what happened. They just they wiped out the competition. It was not, again, you don't want to say what's fair or unfair in, in sort of global economics. It's, it's kind of a, not how it works. But that's what they, that's the game they played, and they did very well. So most U.S. solar panel manufacturers are all gone, and what they're relying on now is industrial policy. So they're relying on the Biden administration, just like the Trump administration, to start. Basically, um, preventing, incentivizing things to make it happen, make them happen in the U.S., subsidizing things, uh, tariffing different products from abroad, and basically trying to rearrange the global production system we've had since the 1980s. That's kind of what's happening. We see it in semiconductors. We see it in, in certain solar energy stuff. We see it with certain rare earth minerals. It just goes on and on. It's kind of what we're seeing across the board. COVID really set this, I mean, just set this loose after with the the PPE and all of the vaccine problems. I mean, people in the United States would be freaking out if we didn't have vaccines made in the country. If they were coming from India or China, it would be even worse. So it really gave people a sense of almost like a national security thing for production for the economy. And we're seeing it. I mean, it's, it's almost a bipartisan thing at this point. So we'll see where it goes. But that's where things are happening. We're not really trying to help other countries as much anymore. We're trying to prevent it from being in China, number one. <laughs> Right. Try to build it here, and then we'll figure everything else out later. That's kind of the thought process.
1: Yeah. Well. So, my thought process is always how can we plan and work backwards versus you know plan from the end result, right? So, in my case, uh, this series I told you about uh, when in our pre-interview, uh, the series of books that I'm writing, tribal living in a modern world, um, is a lot about how do we take technology and marry it with nature, marry it with a natural way of living that does support all the people on the planet in, in a way that's not like the planet isn't killing us because of what we've done to it, right? So um, how do we marry the modern, the technology, the, the influx of this revolution that started with the Industrial Revolution and bring it back to a sustainable, natural flow so that they're kind of together and helping one another versus destroying one another?
0: Yeah, that's a big question. I think it's one of the things that really animated this sort of sustainability movement, the more modern one that's more technologically focused since the you know, mid 2000s. It's been a huge question. Like we need this greater sense with, with global warming, with climate change, with anything going on in the world. And even with the sort of political conflicts you see everywhere resource conflicts, water conflicts, that we have to do something. But there is a real question and a real challenge just because it's not clear that we can do this for everyone everywhere. What's likely is that the sort of place that can have a sort of marriage of nature and technology is a place like the United States that puts the money into it, really invests in it, develops a host of new technologies which don't exist, and then is able to sort of transform its society and economy while also keeping it stable and productive and healthy. Right. And most places on Earth cannot do that. And so, for China, for example, trying to just transform the Chinese energy system is a massive, massive undertaking. So they use fifty percent more energy in the in China than in the United States, mm-hmm. and they have all the dirty industries on Earth. Right. They do more steel manufacturing, like f- steel and aluminum. I'm pretty sure like fifty percent of the entire world. They pull fifty percent of all the coal in the world, you know, out of the ground. Right. They do everything. I mean, all these really, really energy intensive, dirty industries, whether it's, you know, minerals processing or yeah, or steel and steel and different uh, smelting procedures. It's just everything. It's 30% of world manufacturing. So how do you retool this entire production node in the world to run on new forms of energy? I mean, it it's tr- again, trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's tough for China to do because they need low costs for everything. They have to keep people employed. They can't have dislocated people running out of the factories and starting marching through the streets. Like you saw in, um, a bit in Hong Kong. I think that it's, it's really tough to see. I actually see more countries not marrying nature and technology in a wholesome way, but sort of heading, heading back down in a bad way, not able to get the resources they need, not able to, evolve their economy in the way they need, not able to sort of bring society forward at the same time as they're doing all this. It's just extremely difficult. And even the United States, we don't have the best uh, politically minded, cooperative sort of uh, party system right now. So we'll see how that goes too.
1: I mean, if, if you were to, if you were to like, if you were to be doing this, right, but I was Biden, for instance, and you were giving me your you know, five minutes, so to speak, your elevator pitch on why I should listen to your consulting and what I should be doing with the country as far as this aspect goes, what would you be saying to me?
0: I don't wanna shirk the question, but I will say that I don't think that the president has nearly as much power as people think.
1: I understand um, that. And, okay, so- and here, here's, how, here's where, I, where, where I feel the power lies. The power lies in somebody like Kennedy saying, we're going to the moon. You have a decade to do it. We're, you know, this is, it's just going to be done. It's like a mandate, right? They they say something and then the, the world kind of starts doing the things to make that happen, right? So Biden has the power of a leadership position where he can create a mandate. He can say, this is what we're doing you know, like a Kennedy would. I don't think we've had anybody since Kennedy like that, but...
0: Well, I also think our, co- our government, our federal government's not as competent as it was. Particularly, I mean, starting in the 1970s, its ability to actually execute on programs like that for multi-decade or even five, six, 10 years, it's just completely almost disappeared. So what we see is some of the biggest revolutions are just privately funded things. So for example, the, the shale revolution, particularly in Texas, North Dakota, I mean, Pennsylvania, all these small places, they, it's, it was revolutionary for the US energy system, but it, wasn't, it didn't come through any federal initiatives and actually sort of had to push back against a lot of state initiatives that didn't want fracking and didn't want all this stuff to happen. But it's been probably the biggest energy transformation in 50 years in, in the United States. So I'm very wary of, I love the idea. I love you know, going to the moon, setting the mission, setting the plan. But we even look at NASA since the end of the Cold War. NASA hasn't been able to do anything. Right now, it's going to be Elon Musk that goes to the moon with his rockets in Texas.
1: No, I I understand that. But here's, here's the thing, I guess, is the difference. Most people believe that when the government says, let's do a mandate, that it's the government doing the job, right? Right. They don't realize that it's the private contractors, it's the private citizens, the private companies, the engineers, the geniuses, that are actual human beings, right, that are doing the job, that are getting paid. So when they hear something like, this will be trillions and trillions of dollars, they don't hear cha-ching. That means that we're going to be getting paid. That means that our communities are going to have sustainable incomes and we're going to have a future and we're going to have money to spend and we're going to have things to do. All they hear is it's going to cost trillions of dollars, right? So I guess this is where... Yes, I believe that private companies are the answer, private citizens, private people. But I believe that there needs to be some kind of level of incentive that says, you guys got to do this and you got to do it now because we're not waiting anymore for your return on investment, so to speak. We're looking at what's the newest technology, how can we get it out the fastest and, and most effective, et cetera.
0: Yeah, so I don't want to shrink your question. I'll get back to it and just say I think that right. what I would what I would tell them to focus on is, you know, actually try and focus on technology development in certain key areas and stop thinking about technology as just new in, new new texting apps and new video messaging apps and stuff like that. We've really diluted the meaning of the word technology right. and it's 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 really tragic in sort of the consequences. So I'd say, you know, focus on focused on encouraging people to develop new ways to deal with natural disasters are there better ways that we could deal with fires? Is there something better than throwing water on it right are there is there something we could do? you know what I mean the, things like that I think are very important.
1: Hey, you're, you're in LA right? I am in LA yeah I'm familiar thought, with it I saw the 310 because my my numbers are 310 and uh, so I, I used to live through those LA fires right? And I had an idea once, and I brought it to the government. I said, "Let's plant some ice plants all alongside the mountains. They grow very well there. They don't need a lot of water, but they hold a lot of water. It's like planting cactus. You know, they'll, they'll keep a lot of that <laughs> area from, you know, from burning because it'll extinguish the fires." But nobody listened. It was kind of interesting. It was like a really easy thing I felt like to do. But you're right. We're not. Telling people to do that.
0: Yeah. And it's a lot of the reason is just the government contracting method. So let's say you and I had an idea for how to better, you know, fight fires in California. Well, we'd go and we'd pitch something to, you know, probably this Cal Fire. And it would take, you know, three years for them to get back to us. And then, you know, we get a decision. Then we'd start, we get to work on the project for maybe two, three more years. And it's just, it's this massive extended timeline to try things out. So, I I believe they should be more encouraging of a lot more experimentation in agriculture, in transportation technologies, in electrical and energy technologies. Um, I mean, the place is bizarre. You bizarrely enough, you see a medicine. Place. Medicine. Exactly. I mean, even the right to try. That's. A, I think that's a very good policy. Like, let's. You know, people are going to die. They have no other options. We should try things. If they want, if they want to, mm-hmm. they consent. You know, try things. Um, I think that's good policy. But it's funny, the place where you see the the bizarre small innovation and experimentation is often in the military. military has things like DARPA that are invested in trying to push things forward with technology, and a lot of impressive technologies have come out of that. So we need need a bit more of that focus. It's just very hard to get it together in in governments, especially with state governments. Trying to contract with state governments is not fun. Um, So those procedures, I think a lot of things related to it sounds a bit you know, buzzwordy, but smart government, things that can just running the systems for government on more modern systems would be a really good thing. The, the, the reason everything's so bad on a government website is because it took th- the same thing we said, three, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, they had an idea for the website for unemployment benefits in yeah. Florida. And then you know, crisis hits and it all collapses because it was like, well, this thing was basically 2010 technology. And we don't live in that and it can't be updated it's 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 all that's it's it's not right (laughs) it's not right
1: yeah you know the that's part of like in general my issue with with um business with government with what i see in the world like i I see the technologies as they come out you know like the prototypes and the things that people are working on and they're showing done And then I see what's out and I go, there's such a gap. It's like 50 year gap between what is here and what's developed and could be out. And bridging those together is usually a conversation of money, which to me is like the silliest conversation we could have. Right. Money is something we made up the planet. We didn't make up, (laughs) you know, we didn't make up the need of money to be people who wanted to innovate or grow or things like that. I, I, I just find that by using that the money as the excuse not to, we have stunted our personal growth, our financial growth, our systemic growth, and you know our technological growth.
0: Yeah, the places where you see the most technological growth tend to be places with a big consumer market that you can keep coming back to. So if you look at iPhones, or consumer electronics, you get a lot of innovation, just because every year you can put out something new and you can convince them to buy it. And that's, that's huge. Big problem for these technologies is if you just have a government buyer, or if you just have something like that, you can't get rates of innovation and iteration that you need to really continuously advance them. And so in China, for example, there's a new policy, not new, five, six years old, called civil military fusion, Where basically the Chinese government realized that they can't develop military technology as, that's as good as a lot of consumer stuff. And so what they're doing is trying to actively take consumer technologies, things like electronics or little drones that kids use to take videos or whatever, to, and bring that into the military because they've realized that the military timelines are now too long and too slow for the same reason. And the united states has actually the same problem they tried to have a big military cloud product they bought it from there's a whole brouhaha between microsoft and amazon and they basically just said you know we're going to cancel the contract even though it's four or five years old because already the technology is too old so there's a real challenge of bringing we actually see is you have to find a way to either give something a consumer market to, to let it innovate continuously right or you're in trouble. And so it's, that's the place where you can really see a lot of innovation. It's just hard to get. That's why so many technologies just die on the vine. You can't pay the people to keep doing it.
1: So there was something I saw recently and it was, uh, I think Samsung uh, had their TVs on a subscription where you're paying just you know, a monthly amount and you get the TV and every couple of years or whatever, you get the latest one. So, you send them back that one, you get the latest one, kind of like Apple does with the iPhones these days and, uh, and stuff like that. Would it be, with, you know, if we have to have a money system, I think that would be a good money system is we have a subscription model instead of a buy for model. And that way we're encouraging innovation versus encouraging people to have to get rid of their inventory before they can sell anything new.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of things are moving towards the subscription model. It's pretty crazy. Everything feels like it's a subscription now. Netflix is a subscription. Your entertainment is a subscription. Um, Even writers are doing subscription stuff on Substack. There's a subscriptionification of everything it feels like. I think there's a good reason why. It gives you reliable recurring revenue in a way that one-off purchases that could be one year, four, five, six in between really don't do. And often you... You just, you won't need as, as much marketing. Customer acquisition can be a lot lower, small. You don't have to do as as much. If you have someone and you're, they're with you for years, it's reliable revenue. You can loan, you can lend off of it. You can do a lot of cool stuff. So I don't think it's going to replace the money system, but it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of the way services are sold. Almost every app and every sort of cool app on the internet or on your Mac or on your iPhone, they want you to subscribe because it gives them the, certainty that they'll have money and they'll actually continue to invest in improving the technology or at least keep keeping it up to date for the newest operating system. There's a lot of apps I'll get on my Mac that are free that once you update it to a new operating system, they just never update it either because right. they don't have any incentive to. So the subscriptions are definitely here to stay, although they're kind of getting out of control. They, they want you to have a, a subscription for like boxes for your dog and like everything.
1: Yeah. I'm 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 more thinking like if that was the model we went to for technology like you know whether it be um, our energy system we're on subscription models but they don't update the technology with every month you know the way that we're paying for subscription they keep the technology kind of they maintain it but they they're not always updating. Um, So that's where I'm thinking, like, is there a way? I I just want ways. I want things that we can do, something that people, if they're listening to this in the background, the audience, you know, they're like, what do I do? I'm passionate about something and I want to be able to, you know, create a sustainable life. I want to create sustainable living. With all the subscriptions, people are going broke (laughs) because they don't realize that the nine dollars here and the ten dollars there and the nine dollars there is adding up to three thousand dollars, right? So, I, you know, it's like, how do we get to where innovation and sustainability, technology, and free-flowing ideas is like the norm again? Kind of like the Roman era or the Greek, you know, era where people were the renaissance where it was all about rebirth and growing I think we've like hit this stage in our evolution where it's like we like we got to a place in the 50s where we liked it and we just want to stay there forever. (laughs) And, uh, and so, how do we get back to that rebirth mentality. I know you talk a little bit about psychology of it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that I think there's a bit of stasis. And, you know, we're all watching TikTok and watching videos and all the subscriptions we have are typically little consumer comforts that let us just keep doing what we're doing, kind of avoid the fact that the rest of the world that we live in looks exactly like it did in 1970. None of the new physical systems are there. Most of LA was built. Every home feels like it's a weird, poorly built stucco building from the 70s that was supposed to go up for like five, 10 years, be replaced, and then never got replaced. Right. So yeah, we live, you know, our digital comforts and digital, little digital consumer electronics really help us avoid realizing and looking at the fact that the world around us otherwise looks completely old, 50 years old. And, you know, in China, it's a bit different. Everything is is brand new. So there's actually a lot more of a forward-looking, hungry edge to it. They've seen transformation in their lifetimes in a way that most of us have not. So to get back to it is a real I mean, it's, I think it's like a key, key thing we all need to be thinking about. Um, But for stuff, little people, I mean, stuff, little things people can do, (laughs) Um, not not little people. I mean, the the challenge with energy is that you often need huge multi-billion dollar investments. So that's not it, but so, I mean, if you live in the Southwest of the United States, you basically live in one of the best places to have solar energy. You should probably get, I don't want to say you should probably, you, you can get solar panels on your home. They can be installment payments. And it probably will be a great deal. The panels are really good now. So the people who bought solar panels like ten years ago, they were paying you were they were paying for you to have great solar panels today. You know what I mean? Those are outdated and they're 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 terrible compared to what we have now. Um, and the cost is going down so much. I think you you mentioned this earlier that by 2030, solar panels are going to be uh, really really cheap, and they're going to be at at industrial scale at sort of um, major grid scale stuff they're going to be really good but for consumers they'll probably be even better so that's a great thing to do i mean i think solar city which is owned by tesla or tesla energy whatever it's called right. now they integrate batteries and solar panels on your home and that's a good that's a good combo if you if you want to live in a world where you there's electric cars and solar panels and batteries and that's i mean that's a big part of the future that is advocate of the most optimistic future advocated by the solar energy cohort of of the sort of renewable technology thing. Um, That's something to invest in there. I have certain um, reservations about electric cars. Like for example, in China, I don't think China is ever going to be able to run on electric cars. There's, it would need something like four or five times the amount of energy China currently uses, which is more than any country ever, which is 50% more than the United States. And they don't, they don't have the energy for that you would need massive, probably massive and massive amounts of nuclear energy to do that. This is probably the only way. So yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's something people should keep in mind. Running certain places aren't going to run on electric cars and solar energy. Germany is a great example. They built a lot of solar panels in Germany, but they forgot to look up at the sky and notice that it's overcast all the time. So there's a big installed capacity of solar panels. Unfortunately, also old panels, like we said, they su- Germany has subsidized the good panels you can get today. They just, it's just the actual energy generation, the power generation from these panels is, is very limited. And so Germany actually uses more coal than it did 10 years ago. So those are one of those contradictions that you, you don't wanna get caught in. But again, for people here, if you live in the Southwest, if you live in Florida, uh, you live in a lot of the Southern part of the United States, so panels ain't a bad idea. And I, so that's a good one that I would focus on for the energy side of things. It's a good one, the time is there, the time is now.
1: So, you know, you mentioned China could never run unless it was like on nuclear, unless maybe it was local. Um, You know, local supply, I think might be a a little different, but here's my, I guess the, where I wanna go with this question. So we're looking at China and all of the innovation, all of what they're doing, all the energy they're consuming, the pollution that they're making, the violations that they have on human rights. And we go, all right, but we don't really understand their culture much. And so we judge it from our outside perspective and our outside eyes. And so you have a little more of an insider's view on, you know, what it is to be in China, what it is to to be under that culture. So just for the audience who has preconceived notions, which ones are true, which ones not so much? Can you kind of just illuminate on what this thing that uh, we've now known to be China?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of sort of myths and sort of misconceived notions about China. Uh, I'll just try and kind of run through some things that people might find illuminating. to to give them a sense of of that place. And yeah, so I think one interesting thing people wouldn't realize, and that is so hard for people from the West to understand is that the Chinese Communist Party is not despised as a totalitarian dictatorship. Um, Until the last 10, 15 years, the Chinese Communist Party was actually not in most people's faces all that much. It wasn't like authoritarian forcing you to do this or that. There was a lot of freedoms on the ground level because people were, they wanted to encourage private innovation.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: back in the 70s, very different story. Back in the 60s, very different story. 50s, very different story. But in the last 50 years, overall, it hasn't been a, well, 40 years, it hasn't been up in people's grill all the time, although that's now changing. And so the, the party is actually thought to be a good force of easy that you can't do polls in China because that would be dangerous. Um, but in, a healthy majority of, Ch- of Chinese people think, communist party is overall a good thing and they support it hard to hard to believe it goes very much against our western individualist ideas right that's the way it is
1: so so why what what is it indoctrination is it just history and culture is it what is it that that says to them and are they allowed to be individuals still even within the system of control that they're in
0: so there's always a propaganda element in every Chinese state. The, the Chinese state has to manage its population. So China, as a, on a broad scale, has overall bad land relative to the size of the country, and it has limited capital. So it doesn't have a lot of money. It doesn't have the best land. And so there's labor, land, and capital, and technology. But just thinking about labor, land, and capital, the primary resource in China is labor. It's always been the population. You, if you need a great wall built in the desert, you send millions of people to do it. If they end up as mortar for the stones, well, you have millions more. And that's what you see. You need to build things, you get them sent here, you get them sent, you just send people all over to deal with whatever needs to get done. But the people are also a threat at the same time. You have a large, large poor population. There's something like the entire population of the United States. There's like a group that large poverty in china it's hard to fathom and yeah the chinese government and the chinese people are more concerned with one thing probably than anything else and that's political integrity it's political stability and order and the thing they're contrasting the communist party with isn't some western democratic liberal ideal of a individualist democracy with blah 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 it's just chaos they see the two options as order often tyrannical, authoritarian, and terrible versus chaos, which is much worse. And most of China's history it is chaotic. It, it's, it's chaos. It's not in, an integrated state ruling over an integrated people, integrated territory. It is warring, factious clans and warlords duking it out all across the country.
1: Wow. So you, you're talking about the land. Like, you know, we have a whole song about how majestic our land is, <laughs> So I want, you to, I want you to explain that in a way that people who have never been there could grasp what that means for the people, what that land is like, and what it means for the people. Sure.
0: So China's big. China's about the size of the United States overall, like the physical territory. Uh, but China, something like 66, 70% of China is mountainous. And a large part of China is just huge deserts. The whole western and northern parts of China, massive deserts. So when you get down to it, the sort of flat, temperate, arable land that you can farm on, build cities easily, all of that is really small. It's something like maybe 15% of the entire country. And it's maybe the size of Colombia, like the state of uh, Colombia in South America. That's very different than the United States. The United States probably has 30% of the country mountainous and hilly, right? Sort of the, the Rockies and you know, Denver and Salt Lake are, and then you have massive flat stretches of land all the way, you know, in between the Rockies and the Appalachians, basically, Appalachian Mountains is basically a giant valley. It's, right. it's like a million, it's like a million square miles. It's enormous. And there you have the Mississippi River system, really like a bunch of rivers that are all interconnected. You can float things down there. You can send goods, products, troops, messages, everything down and across these rivers. And overlaid on top of these rivers are some of the best, is some of the best agricultural land on Earth. So you really have a nexus. I'm not trying to sing America the Beautiful here, but just to give the comparison, the United States does have a very, very, very fortunate set of natural features that are a major reason why this country is wealthy and powerful. It's not imperialism. It really isn't. It's not colonialism. The United States was the largest consumer market, the largest agricultural manufacturer the largest industrial manufacturer, the largest food producer, the largest everything uh, by like the 1880s within about 100 years after it was formed. And it's been all of that since for over 120 years. And that was before it ever invaded Cuba, before it ever did any of that. It was after the Civil War, so it wasn't built on the back of slavery. So that's something I always want people to keep in mind. It's always good to have a good sense of our country because otherwise we get caught up in very misguided and dangerous forms of American exceptionalism. We'll think, oh, we're so great because X, Y, Z. Well, maybe, but maybe we'd be just as great if we all spoke Spanish or if we'd all been Catholic or something. Right. And my read on things is that's probably true. If you happen to be in this part of North America, you'd manage to take it all over and no one had ever been here in sort of industrializing in a heavily agricultural manner. Like the, the Native Americans weren't quite like the thousands of years of Chinese agriculture. It's, it's very different. But in China, you don't have something like that. The eastern lowlands of China, basically the core regions of China, are the Yellow and Yangtze River Valleys. This is 90% of the Chinese population lives there. Um, And it is not like the United States. It's not like what we were just talking about. It's not this great, large center heartland, or whatever you want to call it, of the United States. It's much meaner. It's much more overpopulated. It's crowded. One way to think about it, imagine the United States was mostly mountains and then on the east coast you had a big kind of large east coast it was, you know you could fit more people there you had 90% of the us population there but instead of you know 300 200 something million people you had 1.2 billion people all stuffed there so you have in china you basically have the american midwest and on top of that you have the equivalent of new york and boston and washington and all of it it's all piled off piled on top of each other there are people fighting for land space air water everything and there are factories and mines and schools and and cities on top of farmland i mean this is just the way it is there's not enough land and that's really
1: really important to keep in mind right and so so for people who um have belief systems like everybody should go back to their country or something right <laughs> right um, we're talking about a country where where would they where are they planning on going right when the population gets too much for that place are they planning on terraforming some of those mountains are they I mean like (laughs) what can they do once once that population is too much for the land mass
0: it's a real question it is certainly straining the ecological carrying capacity of the land so many people China's built over 600 major cities it has over 100 major cities with over a million people that all built in the last uh, few decades. And that's an enormous amount of, of people, of products, of resources that you need. And to sustain that is even harder. You have to keep feeding it. You have to keep pouring down asphalt. You have to keep building buildings. You have to do all of that. It's just maintaining it is very difficult. But one, one thing people should remember is that waves of Chinese people have been leaving China for over 800 years. Okay, This has nothing to do, again, with colonialism. China was not, never, when it was colonized, or it was, it was beaten up by Japan in the 20th century, but it was not colonized by, by other European powers before that. And the reason you have waves of Chinese people in Southeast Asia and why you have Chinese people in the United States, originally in California in the 19th century, is because China is chaotic and unstable. And you actually saw basically wars between North, the equivalent of Northern and Southern China and the Southern Chinese fled to southeast asia and then they fled to the california as well. These are typically people from southern china from the guangdong, hong kong sort of region and it's that instability in china that has led to waves of chinese people elsewhere in the world. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind cuz yeah, people are you tell them to go back to their country but they've left because of instability to call it often to call china a country is not correct. Like that's a new modern nationalist thing. It started in the 20th century. China was more of a culture and civilization, ethnic heritage, cultural heritage, than it was a single unified country. And right. that's that's important. But you asked, to, not to keep talking, but the, you also asked just the question of, well, what do you do with when there's too many people? So China has been in a war between its geography, nature, this terrible land it's been given, and any and all technologies it can use to help it. So China has enormous plans for everything right they're trying to move water from southern China up to northern China because northern China is sinking drying out and getting covered in dust storms and it's it's prone to drought and floods and it's, it's a problem in a lot of ways so they're trying to do that they're trying to do build a green wall basically uh, a great green wall between, uh, to block out the expanding Gobi desert that's trying to eat up a lot of northern China so they're trying to do all these things but there are fundamental limits. It costs a lot of money just to remediate all the pollution, all of the, you know, the air and the water pollution. And like we mentioned, just paving over important farmland, all this kind of stuff, just to remediate that is trillions of dollars. So in a lot of ways, China is stuck with, it kind of blew its load. It's it stuck with the development it managed to get in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. And it's going to have to, Make choices. Make tough choices about what to do afterwards. That's really the best way to think about it. But in China, typically, things devolve into pretty brutal scenarios. You run out of, you have to choose between water and electricity. You have to choose between far, fer, getting fertilizer and you know building military weapons or, or whatever. And that is, those sort of brutal questions might be coming back pretty soon. So that's that's what to keep in mind. It's it's very hard. Like we said, like I was saying earlier, to most places don't have the ability to marry nature and technology in the way that perhaps the U S can, if it can build a sustainable system. But like I mentioned with energy, even Chinese agriculture is its own disaster. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chinese transportation, a lot of it is just being built to keep people employed. Right. Do you need uh, autonomous electric cars and rail systems to go to every single country, every single city? What, wouldn't you just need one or the other? Maybe one of these is never going to, do you need also planes and, and, and airports and every single one. Like, you, a lot of the basic economics of these things aren't rational. This is a political project. All right. of this stuff in China, like we said, they worry about political integrity and chaos, and that's what they're trying to prevent. And well, we'll see how it goes, but it's a, it's a tough, tough problem.
1: Seems like a bit of a, a pressure cooker, actually. You know, it seems like something's going to blow.
0: I believe so. I believe so. I think that there are all... All you need is one, one, the hammer to fall in one area, and it can start a chain reaction. That, that's what's always happened in Chinese history. So the people need to remember, if China is a massive superpower, uh, and it's always been, it's a once and future superpower, and this is just its rebirth into the modern world, which is kind of some of the narrative we've all heard, mm-hmm. really, if that is the case, uh, why, why, is, why do all of its states always collapse? Every single one has collapsed. Every single Chinese state has collapsed and ended in a massive kerfuffle and bloody struggle. And we need to look at why that's happened um, and see if there's anything different today. It's really the question is, what is different today that could keep China together? Not, well, China will continue forever without any problem because that's not what's
1: happened. Right, so so let's take it to a cultural step there in, in that case. So culturally speaking, what keeps China going is... The culture that they've developed over the last however many thousands of years of, of doing this behavior of implode, rebuild, implode, rebuild, implode, rebuild, right? right. So different mentality, different psychology, you know, let's talk about how, how the psychology of that is manifesting in the scenario versus, say, the psychology of Uh, We're in this together, we can do this and we just got to figure out and plan the steps and then execute them, right? So taking it out of that emotional um, back and forth upheaval, do you think that China is capable at this point of shifting the psychology from ancient to modern?
0: No, no, I think that the psychology is... The, the, the desperate struggle for political integrity and unity, and it's very hard to move away from that. And so the way it works in China, like we were saying earlier, the U.S. has a lot of different pieces, right? There's Texas, there's California, like there's the Northeast, the Northwest, there's Alaska, there's Hawaii. There's many different parts in different cultures all around the country. I right. think that's something we all we always think about. Florida is not California. Um, Alabama is not Minnesota. And this is the same thing in China. So when I'm talking about political integrity and all of that, what I'm really talking about is Northern China. Beijing is in Northern China. Beijing actually means Northern capital uh, in Chinese. And Northern China is where you have political, military, and political and military power. And what has always happened in China is that China is the creation of the Northern warlords, basically. And they conquered the rest of China. And they actually did that just as, Recently as well. That's there's only one time in China's history when there hasn't been like a northern power that took over everything else. And that's the culture that matters. That's the culture that is running the show. So Southern China and the southern ports have a very different perspective. Shanghai has a very different perspective. Western China, Tibet, Xinjiang, very different perspective. But the overriding one, the only one that can come to the top and really set the tone is the one in northern China, because that's the one that can keep things together or can try to. If you let Hong Kong run China, uh, there's not going to be China very long. There's, there's not going to be any of that. So to have a unified China, you really need this northern power to keep things together and obsessively try and make it work. And usually it fails at some point. Um, but that's the culture that rises to the top. So there's never no no Chinese leader since Mao has ever been from southern China. There's they, they go down on tours to Southern China. That's a big moment in Chinese history. In the late 70s, early 80s, when uh, and then early 90s when Deng Xiaoping went to Southern China, that was a big moment. It was a, it was a symbolic event because Southern and Northern China aren't the same. Even uh, ethnically or visually, a lot of Chinese people know and can tell someone who is from Southern versus Northern China. It's Again, these have been not, not even just separate countries. I mean, they've been different places that are populated for thousands of years, right? There are there's a region in China called Sichuan, which has the good food that mm-hmm. has its own you know, old culture. It had a culture that went back three, over 3000 years, had its own language. And even today, the Sichuanese, like the, the language they speak there, more people speak that as a first language than German or French. And the, you know, the province of Guangdong in Southern China where Hong Kong is that there's more people there than any country in, in Europe, except for Russia. Wow. So, there's just, it's a scale question. So the, this question of like, can you integrate into a new harmonious sort of cultural? The Chinese perspective is no. <laughs> There's way too much diversity. The histories are way too old. And what they did was they, they simplified the language. They, they imposed written Chinese on everyone. They, because these languages in China, they say, they call them dialects. Oh, you know, this is a dialect. This is a dialect. It's not. Most languages in China are mutually unintelligible. Only propaganda calls them a dialect right? But you have to do that because you want this sense of unity. It is essential. So that's what I would say. This, this up and down, this endless up and down, build, collapse, rebuild, all that, it has a permanent mark. And to move beyond it, that's been the goal since 1949. Well, since modern China, since 1911, really. And they just have not found a way to do it. And technology and pushing into the future, pushing so as fast as you can it's kind of like a Republican or Democrats trying to focus on enemies abroad or broader ideals. It pushes people forward and can also avoid some of the immediate problems. Like, well, maybe everyone in the Republican party doesn't agree right now on things. Maybe everyone in the, you know, the Democratic party doesn't quite see eye to eye and in fact, are you know, clashing at moments. Right. Well, let's look into the future. Let's just ride this technology wave as far as possible. That's what China's been trying to do.
1: That sounds like a good thing to do though. So. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I like is let's ride technology as far as it can go until it becomes seamless with the rest of nature and the rest of the world. But um, so for Americans who want to do business with China, who are in the business, like uh, I, I used to do a lot of manufacturing of gym equipment. We had, you know, we had a- factories in China. So for people who want to do business with China, don't know how safe it is don't know the processes and all that stuff just kind of give a little bit of a what what would somebody want to think about
0: yeah so the whole relationship with china is is changing right now it's transforming there's more conflict more animus than in hostility than we've seen since relations were normalized in in the 1970s so we are really looking at a major sea change in what's been happening so you know, how, how to think about it, uh, not, not to plug, but I do, if people have specific questions, sort of, you know, if you're in the entertainment industry, you want to see if your content can work. If you manufacture things, you want to see if your products will get stolen and copied right away. Uh, yeah. Those are sort of things I help address sort of directly because it can be very specific. But in general, uh, you probably, it depends industry by industry, but in general, I think what you said earlier is the long-term right move. I think if you can, you want production maybe in North America. I know that's, that's very difficult that the, the challenge of moving out of China is extreme, but the costs are also rising. I think that, you know, maybe you're not going to be able to do massive production runs all across the world, right? You don't need the same scale that you had. If you're just really selling in the United States, if the global supply chain system, global production world, we live in changes, maybe you don't need that. Maybe you can get ahead of the curve, but in general, it's, it's very dicey these days. I mean, energy costs are going up across the the, the, the Chinese coast. So are labor costs. So prices are higher. So a lot of them, they're eating a lot of those costs. So right now they're keeping people employed, their subsidies, et cetera, but they're rising. And a lot of people are moving to Southeast Asia. There's Vietnam. If you're in you know textiles, you can move back to the United States. You can move to Southeast Asia, but it does depend on each industry. But we're also seeing more and more party infiltration of operations in China. So just to think about it just to give people the broad context the chinese the chinese communist party is a 95 million person you know organization that runs the country right so you have all these government agencies and they're staffed by party officials it's as if there was one you know democratic party there's only one party allowed in this country and they sort of had a shadow organization in everything right in the 1970s like i was saying earlier this was everywhere you used to get your your food from the party leader the party bureaucrat the party secretary in your town you get your housing from him your business would be you know secured by him etc that changed when you had you know, the, the privatization and entrepreneurial sort of time came a bit later. Now we're kind of getting back to some of that. So there are party officials, party cells, party councils, and coming back into everything. Multi-tenant buildings will have party officials. Major corporations all have party officials. So a lot of people that have joint ventures with companies in China are realizing that these state companies that they're partnered with have a lot of party activity going on and so the party is trying to both claim the trying to claim the uh the glory for rejuvenating china and wants to be back in everyone's face doesn't want to be behind the scenes as much anymore wants people to see the red armbands you know what i mean here we are you know we rebuilt china it's the national rejuvenation of the chinese nation um but it's also just getting up into everyone's grill again and so major tech companies are having you know, there's party control of their data at this point as well. So I'd be very wary. I think, again, it really depends on industry. If you're just manufacturing small things, probably not a big deal. Keep doing it wherever cost is lowest, right? I mean, you're trying to, you have a business, so that's a smart thing to do. If you're sending a lot of data back and forth to China, that's probably going to be dicier and dicier, but but yeah, it's again, I, I think there's so much transformation and change right now that, giving the broader stuff, the sort of general stuff can be tougher, but the general stuff I'd say is that relations are getting worse with China every year and things are probably going to keep getting worse because the humanitarian crisis in Western China, the political conflict with Taiwan, the sort of eradication of a lot of the freedoms and everything that's gone on there for decades, centuries, um, the conflicts, potential conflict with Taiwan, you know, the militarization of the South China Sea, all this isn't going away. <laughs> in fact, it's all kind of hitting into a massive nexus of problems that is allowing the US government to target China more than ever before. We also seeing more cyber attacks and cyber targeting by Chinese companies than we've ever seen. So I'd be I'd be wary of all this. Personally, I'm not going back to China. I don't think I'm welcome anymore. I wouldn't wanna have an exit ban. So I come in and never am allowed back, but people should be wary of, of this. I mean, this is not, yeah.
1: Yeah, so what's the devastation potential as, we pull back and start manufacturing in the US again and, and doing those local things. Is there a net devastation or a net benefit to like calming the waters, so to speak, by taking back some of those jobs and, and some of that? I mean, what, what's that prod with China?
0: Do you mean uh, calming yeah, the I... waters, our tensions with them? I don't know. No, tensions... no. I mean,
1: calming the waters as far as like, they're busy. Right. They're busy, 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 busy. They don't stop. They're busy. Right. busy. They're doing all of our stuff, all of their stuff, you know, right. all of the rest of the world's stuff. As you said, like 50% of manufacturing and of energy consumption and all these things, they're busy. If we pull back and mm-hmm. we start manufacturing in the U S as the largest, probably user of the Chinese, you know, people, right. That, what's the prognosis what's going to happen well it's a it's a dicey
0: thing the chinese system is built for exports it got all of the money most of well got a lot of the money it needed to develop the country through exports since the, the the 70s late 70s and 80s it just money came in through the ports you know they they loaned against it and they you know built everything in their country that's the the general super simplified story so that's also where a lo- that's one of their most productive and credible industries and it brings in hard currency and it does a lot of things to stabilize the chinese you know financial monetary system
1: mm-hmm.
0: but you know if that goes away there are deep deep challenges that the state has to face and a big one is just that you it china needs the enormous volumes of global manufacturing it needs to build not just for china you know widgets just for china but widgets for everyone that's how it gets the volume. That's how it gets the profits. That's how it gets the scale. And that's how it keeps the employment levels up. China needs people employed and needs money coming in. And the US pulling back is a major, major threat because the US is the largest consumer economy in the world. So you can add up the rest of Europe and you're not going to get the same sort of effect for, for China. Right. And they need to re- So this has been the whole thing the last 10 years. People are like, well, China's going to have to change you can't just export forever japan doesn't just do that japan's clearly not just exporting all around the world like it was in the the 70s right uh things have changed but china's going to really struggle i don't think it's i don't think it's even possible for it to be a consumer economy ideally china would want to start manufacturing for itself sort of rejigger the economy have more you know internal products and services and be able to sort of self-sustain what it's built but that's for a lot of reasons that's probably not possible so this is this question i mean this is what makes the chinese state and the government so tense so nervous and anxious and defensive you see that with every all of their diplomats are you know getting you know in everyone's face and having all this negative commentary and they're they're trying to project an image of power to their own people primarily and you know to try and not be seen as weak to not have any any event that could suggest that the communist party is you know weak or incompetent or out of its depth or illegitimate because they run on getting things done. Like you said, busy, 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 keep doing things that people agree with it. You don't, you can't vote on their policies, but you can, you can see that they're responsive and making things better. And that's what they run on. It's like performance. It's like, well, LeBron James gets rings, right? right. We didn't Vote on him, but I don't mind that he, you know, is on the Lakers. So that's kind of what they're going for. They wanted to like have results and they don't want things like, you know, a lab leak or something like that that would suggest that the party's totally incompetent. So you're not gonna find answers to that sort of question in right. a state where they're worried about those issues.
1: So with, with that and with all the fear going on, you know, let's just talk about the psychology of, of the fear of other, because obviously we're experiencing that a lot. The other, as far as other technology, other new things, uh, the other as far as race and culture, the other, Let's just talk a little bit about that and how we can possibly come to a place where like you learned about a culture, you have an insight about them and what might be as possible for a solution that they might not see because they're blind. They've been in the same you know, mindset forever, so they don't have your outside mindset. So how can we get to a place where we're teaching that more the the ideals of the other and the history of the other so that we can not only appreciate and respect it but then help that transformation go smoother faster
0: yeah you you want to have you want to get the insiders and the outsiders perspective i think that's a great way so you want to You know, you want to have your own outside perspective on China, but also really work to get a look, you know, see through their their eyes over the long term. And I think that the idea of multiculturalism, multicultural education and all of that, when it really got big and things the 60s and the 70s, there was this impulse behind it. But it's gone wildly astray. We only learn very superficial things about countries. We look at some trinkets and weird minor aesthetic things in a country and think we're multicultural. We go travel around the world and act like tourists and think that we're actually learning and getting a handle on these places. And I don't think we do. I think that part of the reason we have so much racial conflict tension, ethnic tension, religious tension everywhere is like we've never actually managed to teach people how these different groups really function and really think and actually get people to acknowledge the actual differences. So that's a major, I mean, you brought up a major, major challenge and I don't see a system. I see we're kind of becoming more Hostile and tribalized for all sorts of groups, both within this country and outside the country. So, I I don't support any of this. I don't think, I also think that all the, you don't need anti Chinese sentiment in the United States. A lot of, like I said, a lot of people in China fled in the United States from China, originally fled China. You know what I mean? This is not a, this is not what people think it is, I guess I, I would say. And I would also say that the, we need to find a way to actually, Acknowledge people's histories, their ethnic heritages, as well as you know the American one, we have to find a synthesis of this that actually works. Uh, it's too much of this is being is having people's identities that are already kind of weak and fragile being yoinked around and pulled by all sorts of media and political groups that want them to participate in whatever programs or activi- activists or. You know policies that they're trying to implement, I think that's also very dangerous.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an all believer in activating your vision for a better world. That's kind of the whole thing with create a new tomorrow today, is so that we can activate our vision and so that people can become activists. So I like encouraging activism. What, what I feel like is it's really difficult for people to know the truth, so they never know what they're really fighting for or against. Yeah, And that's what concerns me kind of the the most is like, I've had conversations with people who have a very staunch position and then you tell them the truth and they go, huh? Like, I never knew that, right? And then now their position shifts. And then you have other people who staunch position and you tell them the truth. And they double down on that staunch, staunch position, right? So we've got to figure out a balance between those in this. You know, like I like to get both sides of an opinion or all sides of an opinion so that I have all things to work with. And then I could develop my own from that, right? My own truth.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's really a good way to go about it. So when I think about China, just to use my sort of mm-hmm. example, I think the Chinese political system is, is brutal, totalitarian, awful, merciless, cruel, all of that. But I think Chinese civilization has produced some of the more profound um, things I've ever seen, never heard about, never learned about. So you really have to keep certain contradictions in your head, in a sense. Like uh, if I just left it at that and said, China, brutal, terrible, awful, Whatever, that would please all sorts of people and make it a little less complex, but it really would prevent you from getting that inside look at things, right? It would prevent you from actually seeing, well, what does it mean to struggle in a place with so much, you know, bad land, difficult enemies all around, and actually, you know, build something nonetheless for all of its flaws, right? No one can look at modern China and think, wow, they really they really screwed up here, right? I mean, they they didn't they didn't manage to accomplish anything. I mean, like no, they clearly built something ridiculous. Um, so I support that but yeah your question i i really agree you want people to be activated and involved and but we sort of we sort of are putting the cart before the horse a bit because we're not get giving people a strong sense of themselves and you know their group affiliations or, or whatever it is before they get activated so when i was mentioning earlier it feels like people are just getting pulled around by different media or political forces my sense is that you know i guess mainstream media they they know people don't have with, you know, strongest identity or understanding of things around the world. And they kind of take that advantage of that. So I want to give people a better understanding of the world, of, of how things work of what their country is. So when we talk about what the United States is and what makes it you know, great or powerful or wealthy, what, when what's bad about it. I want to take this perspective to, to everything because it can give people the context they need to you know, navigate successfully, you know, to a better tomorrow.
1: Right. So that's kind of so, what I look at. So let's get to the U.S. a little bit. The U.S. hasn't been number one in much of anything for about 40 years, right? But we still consider ourselves the greatest country on earth. And at one point, the greatest superpower, while we still are a force of nature that way. (laughs) um, What is the U.S. identity? You've, You've looked into united states in relationship to china but also just into the u.s you're you're a history you know person and so if you were to explain to the to somebody not in the united states what is the u.s what would you say to them in the context of what we've been talking about
0: yeah, I mean, I'd say the U.S. is a very, I mean, I think it's the most powerful country in the world, but it is struggling to find a, a sense of self and a direction for the future. And a lot of it has been aimless, adrift, listless, misdirected for decades. And that you can go as far back as you want, you know, at some point, I think a good a good time to keep in mind would be maybe the end of the Cold War, where the U.S. from 1945 to 1991, the U.S. was Pretty competent on a lot of things. It was getting a lot of things done. It was keeping allies around the world together, to, you know, to compete against the Soviet Union. Brought people to the moon, built space stations, was doing really impressive stuff. I think that since then, it's been a major challenge to even figure out, well, what's an ally of the United States? I, I like I, I actually ask people to question these sort of things. Like, what's an ally? What, what are we? Why? Who's an ally? What, what does it mean? What are we trying to do? Right? We have a global. It was a global military that was built for to compete against something that doesn't exist. And I think that the, the key for the United States is to define a vision of, of the future and try and move forward uh, you know, towards it. I think that what you're doing is you know, part of that. I think that what you were talking about with technology, what we've been talking about with technology is a key way that the future is going to be technologically driven. So you have to move, like, like we were saying, China does, take, ride technology as far as it can take you. And obviously there's problems that come with that. There's doing having social interaction entirely be on dating apps, have you know personal interaction lowered, have all sorts of weird trolls on the internet, you know running everything all there's all these negative consequences. but you really have to move into the future and I think it's been very hard for the US to I think you mentioned earlier that there's a sense of stasis and yeah we both have we're both like adrift, listless, misdirected, and also static. and it's a very, I, painful painful thing to feel to experience it you like, we feel you probably feel the same way there's so much potential in this country i still feel it but it just seems like it's dissipating out And you know, like yeah. people aren't investing they're not able to put the time in and the work in or the energy in and it's it's tough we need a motivational we have to we have there's a motivational component we have to move the curve of, of motivation towards you know towards putting in more energy
1: towards, more effort. Towards action yeah we need to, action motivation yeah. needs to be moved into action that's been my biggest thing And motivation is crap you know, I, I love that saying, motivation is crap, action is everything, you gotta do it. And uh, we're in such a state of trauma. I look into people's eyes when I'm, you know, walking down the street, cause you can only see their eyes when they're still wearing their masks. <laughs> and uh, and people just look worn out, they look done. And, yeah. um, you know, like, like, I don't see a whole lot of life in people right? So the question is, as we're activating our visions for a better world, as we're doing all these things, having it be in a place and in a way that it adds to your life, right? And I think that, that what you were saying, the, the information, getting them the information gets that, but also that sense of purpose, that sense of self So how does the individual, right? The American citizen drive that together and then the government respond because we're going to talk citizen up versus government down.
0: Yeah. Well, to sustain the action that you need to really accomplish whatever a major goal is, you really need to have a lot of meaning and purpose behind it. I think you're right. And people need to really pursue things that give them profound meaning and they're willing to work for for a long time one problem I really see is I feel like a lot of our energy goes into routine politics like it's the current issue that's on politico.com or it is the next midterm election or it is the most recent uh, budget or bill proposal the perspective I've tried to take on China to, to understand China you can't look at the last five years last couple ten years you can't look at every little word the government says you have to look at sort of the broader, structural things that guide what's going on. And I'd really encourage people to take the same perspective on the United States. So one thing that I think might be helpful is that the way I read what's going on in the country right now, people should expect, like when you said you see everyone just sitting, you know, they look dead and drained walking around. I think that's true. But I also think that what we're we experience, there's no back to normal after COVID. I think what we're going to see most likely is a period of serious political, economic, social, social and cultural instability for eight to ten years, probably at least. And I know that's a really tough thing to hear or to say, but everyone I talk to guess has a sense that the hammer is about to fall again. That's, I get that sense from a lot of people. and I think that it is true it's maybe not going to be like another pandemic. unfortunately it's not that easy. but they say like the history uh, it doesn't repeat it rhymes. so there'll right. be something like like that, something different but it f- feels just as bad. But yeah, it's a major thing, and our political parties right now are not going to solve this problem. They are struggling to redefine themselves for a modern era. We have Biden, who is like almost 80 years old and doesn't, clearly doesn't represent a lot of where the, the real energy is in the American left. Then you have on the Republican side, on the, the right, you have Trump, who really wants to kind of try stay in the limelight and doesn't want to give you know new people breathing space to maybe integrate some of the, the changes it seems he's caused on the right. And so you, you don't have political, you have rearranging coalitions among the political parties right now. And it's not a time to invest all of your energy in politics. It's going to burn you out. I'm not saying to not invest and not believe in politics. That's, that's very important for people, but it's, there, there's other things like we were talking about technology, how things come from the private sector, how things come from communicating and, and doing things. That is what you really need to do. It's not just investing in hopeful political change. Mm-hmm. I think we're, you know, we're going to be in a period where there's going to be a lot of recurring crises and what the government's going to do is respond to crises. Like we saw more government action <laughs> when the COVID hit than we saw 10 years before, and we're going to see government, you know, governing by crisis for many right. years to come. So if we just accept that, then we get a sense of like, okay, well, we got to put our energies elsewhere and see how we can marry this, how marry this crisis down and maybe human action, you know, citizen action up that makes sense
1: right yeah no absolutely we got to manage the crisis down citizen action up but also maintaining that uh level of communication i guess between the two so buckminster fuller one of my you know heroes i guess in life mentors um said you know don't fight the system as it is build something next to it that's better and people will yeah. Pretty much. That, that's like the basic of what he was saying. It's a paraphrase. But that idea is kind of goes along with my saying is we made this shit up, we could do better. And the idea around all of it is all of this is a figment of our imagination. Everything that we see the zoom in front of me, <laughs> everything that's in front of us sometime didn't exist and was created by Us and our imagination. And so we can create and we can imagine differently. So let's imagine differently for a second, right? If you could just go into your imagination and create the world as you would like it, create the China as you would like it, as you would like to see it, create the United States as you'd like to see it, or just in general. But take a couple minutes to just go in your imagination and say, what would I like to create? What would, what would I like it to look like?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would like, I would like for, for the United States first, I mean, I would like the information technologies that we're developing to be widely accessible. I'd like learning to be easily accessible. I would like the barriers to action and to entry into different markets to be very low. I'd like people to be able to create podcasts, create audio, video content to communicate, share ideas, develop knowledge very easily. I'd like the learning that's sort of contained in universities and more and more cloistered and inaccessible to be broadly distributed. I would like a lot of, you know, people, interdisciplinary sort of teams of people working on very hard problems. I would like people, I would like our imaginative entertainment to be pushing towards a more interesting place. I wouldn't, I don't want a world of endless sequels, sequels of comic books from the 40s. I, I think all of that is important I think I'd like to see a world where these technologies are improving people's lives in an immediate way and it start to pile on top of each other where you're like oh wow we've we now have electric boats and we've improved the, the whole Mississippi River and we can do really cheap transportation and well now let's do this oh let's add this on top of it and I would like this sort of sense of increase I mean from an economic thing it's like I'd like the sense of increasing you know prosperity to sort of return because that it, it, it really pushes greater levels of action and inspiration. And I think a lot of people, particularly the millennials and younger, there's this sense of, well, I'm just gonna post some images, you know, some have some funny videos because everything's terrible and no one's gonna have money and things are getting worse. That I think is super dangerous. And yeah, I think a world where there's real things being built in the physical world that are new, that are different, that are impressive, that are inspiring, very important. I think adding these new digital technologies and making them less addictive and less compulsive and right. more, you know, broadly beneficial would be awesome. And then trying to marry places where the physical and the digital world could come together in new ways to that en- enhances human flourishing, right? That would enhance human flourishing, that would give us augmented reality that instead of showing us ads everywhere, would you know, let me communicate with you, I don't know, full, full body to body, person to person, we could have a digital virtual podcast that would, right. everyone could see or people could even join in like as an audience right i think anything like that is awesome and th- that's a that's a future that i think is is cool i think that there's something very true like our future we only imagine a future that's better if there's new cool more advanced technology it, it seems like that's built into modernism to the industrial world to the world we've had since you know in the last 500 years so i don't believe in sort of ditching technology and going back to Arcadia, I don't right. think that's going to inspire anything. So that's that's something I, I look for. I mean, I also, I'll be honest, I don't believe in the end of political, and con- no, I, I, I believe in the end of political violence, but not the end of political back and forth. Right, right. I think no, conflict
1: t- is necessary.
0: Yeah, the conflict is necessary. The opposition is, is good. I, I mean, people don't know, but in the 19th century, Americans were proud of how virulent their <laughs> political conflicts where they would love to have just gangs of people going outside of polling stations and duking it out to show how much they cared about their cause right people thought that was a sign of i don't know of a lively and invested sort of political system
1: mm-hmm. so
0: we obviously have a different idea now it seems oh so uncivilized and barbaric and we're all so should be beyond this now but you no know, maybe not maybe we're not as you know maybe we're a bit more medieval than we think and maybe it's not that bad yeah it's obviously problems but
1: well, you know, our, our biology doesn't necessarily uh, evolve at the same speed as what we consider our maturity conscious, yeah. right?
0: We're stuck with it. I'd like a world where we also don't try and ditch our biology as much. So we try to understand it and bring it with us into the world, right? If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I've I been a studier of, of humans, you know, from the inners to the outers, the physical body to the emotional body, spiritual body, that's been my field of of inquiry for most of my life. And um, there's always going to be conflict, right? The idea is, is there progress or is there stagnation in the conflict? And I'll give you an example. I remember I was part of a, a group that had been around since the 60s and this is in the early 2000s when i first moved to la and uh it was based on old marx groups out of san francisco and i remember after about two or three years of going there every single monday i would go okay i just heard the same conversation between the same people as I heard two years ago, the same problems, the same issues that they had with, you know, it was like the same conversation. And I'm like, these people aren't moving. I got to go. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, ha- I can't. It's like I, I have my own personal discomfort. I have problems watching things stagnate. Yeah. It's still not grow, not advance, not move forward to their next evolution, right? And what it feels like to me is that we have that stagnation. This, this mm-hmm. like, it, and it's like we're in the boiling pot or the pressure cooker. So you can't see the steam yet. You can't see the violent roar of the boil, but it's just the pressure cooker is there. And um, yeah, I want to be able to let off the steam and move forward with eating of that food, and then making a new meal. Right versus just letting it steam until there's nothing left.
0: Yeah. The idea that we're all stuck in these same meetings, we're all go and we're just having the same conversation, talking about the same problems and nothing moves forward. I think that's pretty accurate, man. If we look at it at the political level, we all seem to be having the same dead political conversations, whether it's about abortion or other rights or racial justice, it seems like a continuation of the same thing. So... I think to add to our imagining of a better world, I think we should maybe consider that the famous isms of the 20th century, 19th century, the communism, the socialisms, the capitalisms, all of these, maybe the like, do we think that the best thinking on these subjects is in the future or that it's already happened, right? Are we still going to get a lot of mileage out of talking about them in the way we've talked about them using the ideas we've talked about them? I think not. And I think that we're going to need actual new ideas. So one thing I think is very important is pulling ourselves out of the media discourse that we see on a day-to-day basis. It's not meant to move us forward. It's meant to make every issue we see our personally, emotionally invested an issue we're personally and emotionally invested in. And I think that's very dangerous when there's a million endless things to be personally and emotionally invested in. And you really have to self-direct where, where you're gonna go. And I just want new new ideas and new conversations. So, like you said, to, for the frog to jump out of the pressure cooker, not just steam to death and just start hopping along to, to new places. Right. And we, we really need that. And I think the great thing about podcasts, the great thing about this world is that we can actually have discussions that don't have to fit the same formula. Right. So if you just go on to cable news or you go on to even just a a talk show where someone's just doing their bit over and over again, you can't see new ideas and new thoughts and new communication happen in in real time. And we need that. I mean, I think it's so stimulating. Like when you hear like, well, I've never heard that, never heard that talked about, never heard them talk anything about that in that way. It's like, it's stunning because it's so rare in a sense, not because it is rare, because we're not, it's not, we're not allowed to see it. You go to university, you're supposed to be exposed to all new, all these new ideas. You just hear, all the, that's where all the the bad crusty ideas come from now. So it's a real challenge. I think a lot of people are starving for this sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. This is where I go back to that Roman Greek era where, you know, the Renaissance, where you had the great thinkers, where the culture was revered for their thinking, for their study, for their art, for their creativity, for their imagination, instead of their production. And that's like a big difference. Like Do we need this much production or can we slow down? Can we create, can we think deeper? Will we get further faster? I always tell this to to my patients and clients, you'll get there faster, the slower you go. Will we get there faster if we slow down and take a minute to actually think and figure out what we want? And one of the sayings that I have is I, I want people to stop gathering to complain and start collaborating to succeed. And uh and so that's that's where this show is about. And I'm I'm very glad to have you on and and talk about these things that aren't really ever talked about. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they'd like to to learn more, work more with you or?
0: Sure. Yeah, you can. No, there's my email, j.cheftel at gmail.com. If you wanted to contact me there, I'm on Twitter at, at Jason Scheftel. I have a podcast called the China Unraveled Podcast. There's currently 11 episodes. They're kind of deep dives in different things about China. I'm doing one more that's going to be about the Communist Party, just about what what is it? Like, what actually is it? How does it function? Where is it going? What does it mean? And then I'm going to change the format, make it more interactive, put a lot more content out for people. I think it'll be really cool. There's also a YouTube channel where I do some live streams and probably some questions and answers now that I'm getting more of them. And I think there's that. And yeah, I also have a website where there's some, certain essays, other stuff I've, I've done up there. It's also just www.jasonsheftel.com. Awesome. And the last, thing, the last thing people might be interested in, just I realized that what we kind of need is not so much experts telling you how things are, but someone trying to give you the framework to figure it out for yourself. So later this year, I'm going to be doing probably a free course that's going to explain some of these principles about different countries, how to think about them, how to build up your understanding about yourself, I mean, your ethnic heritage from wherever you happen to be, your country, wherever you're you're from, and then all of the weird political conflicts we see around the world and where things are headed. So that'll be kind of cool. If People are interested, they can message me or learn more, but that would be really cool. I'd be interested. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely send it to you. It'll be great. It's really fun.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been another great episode of create a new tomorrow where we are creating a new tomorrow today and activating our vision for a better world. We could look at all these things that we're learning and hearing and discuss it and try to figure out where we fit in this mix of activating our vision for this better world. So thank you so much for being here, Jason. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Ari. It was a lot of fun.
1: Awesome. We'll see you next time.
0: Yeah, see you next time.